from the Society for Nautical Research in partnership with Lloyd's Register Foundation, I'm Sam Willis and this is the Mariner's Mirror podcast, the world's number one podcast dedicated to all of maritime history. Hello everyone and welcome to the Mariner's Mirror podcast. Today I'm speaking with David Pulvertaft, a retired Rear Admiral with a fascination and deep knowledge of ships' figureheads, with a particular interest in figureheads from warships. He is the author of a number of works on figureheads, including Figureheads of the Royal Navy, published in 2011 and the result of 20 years of research into the topic. David kindly invited me to his house and showed me his library of reference material and also the remains of some splendid figureheads. Do please bear in mind as you are listening to this that we have created a fabulous video or more accurately a series of videos to go alongside this podcast in which we use artificial intelligence to scan images of figureheads and then translate that data with the help of some digital artistry into a photoreal human face. This has been a bit of a hit and miss process with a number of spectacular and hilarious failures, but we have had success with 11 and they are fabulous. You can say perhaps these videos bring the figureheads to life or perhaps they reveal the real person who inspired the figurehead carvers. When I looked at the many figureheads that survived, one of the things that immediately struck me was the diversity of humanity depicted in these remarkable carvings. Although the societies that made them were dominated by white men, the figureheads show a huge range of people, both men and women, and from a huge variety of indigenous populations. I think this makes the surviving figureheads particularly interesting and also serves as a powerful reminder of the colonial activities that many of these ships would have taken part in, including, of course, the buying and selling of humans in the slave trade and the appropriation of vast tracts of land occupied by indigenous peoples. Because of this, the subject of figureheads is, I think, far more significant than many suspect and has yet to be fully explored for its cultural implications. So if you're listening to this and fancy writing a PhD on it, well, I'm fully in support. Now, here is David Pulvertaft. You can picture us in a beautiful tall ceiling study in a house in Ottery St Mary in Devon. Here we are in David's office. Uh, and it's fabulous. It's it's slightly like what I imagine a Roman emperor's room to be when you're surrounded by busts, except you're you're a flag officer and you've got figureheads. But it's the same principle as Nero's palace, I think. Who are who are these chappies? We've got we've got a couple of couple of figureheads here. Who's this guy down here? He's he's a little Indian boy <clears throat> who uh, wasn't all for warship, and it's warships that I really concentrate on. But uh, Mary Ray's my wife. Uh, found him in a Phillips uh, auction sale in 1990 uh, and thought he was rather fun and bought him for me. And that sort of set the ball rolling. Uh, I've got no idea who he was, indeed whether he ever came off a ship because he might well be a modernish carving uh, who's been distressed to make look old, mm. but he's quite a, a friendly little character. He's a very friendly little character. We've got a green spit of scroll work at the bottom, a very smart red tunic, arms folded, a, a uh, beady-eyed... Is that a smile? It's a sort of semi-smile, isn't it? And a fabulous turban on yeah. the top. Yeah. Um, and then a very different head right on the top of, of your bookcase here. Who's that? 
Oh, he's not nearly good condition, but he's uh, much more interesting in that it's, it depicts King George IV uh, and it was given to me. Uh, it's, it's only the head of a bust figure and on the wall below him is a photograph of him when he was complete in an orchard in Gloucestershire. It's a wonderful photo. He, he's, he's covered in snow as well. Um, yeah. And uh, so what, how, what happened to the head? Did the rest of it sort of fall apart and you ended up with the head? Yes, he, he typically people painted them once a year, left them outside and naturally rot set in and he obviously collapsed. And, but he's, he's in the traditional style in the photograph. It shows him wearing the sash and the star of the Order of the Garter. He's got a laurel wreath on his head yeah. uh, and uh, green sideboards. Uh, the person who gave it to me was a, uh, a widow of a diplomat and they bought him in a, an auction sale uh, and put him in their garden. They had no idea who he was. And the reason he's got green hair is because their gardener wanted to repaint him and all he had in the potting shed <laughs> was green paint. A bit of uh, make do. Yeah. Make do men with what, with uh, what you can. I like that. He's, um, he's a very sort of classic figure, well, a figurehead shape. It's not a brilliant carving. The skin is a sort of doughy colour. Um, and one of the things I love about figureheads is the variety. So this is Indian chap down here. It's actually a very well-made, well-sort-of-constructed uh, carving, whereas this one's a bit sort of clumsier, isn't it? And there's such a wonderful variety in figureheads. Yes. I, I think, I haven't got true provenance for him, but I think he came from uh, an 1821 ship which was built for the Falmouth Packet Service, mm -hmm. uh, six-gun... Uh, packet and it was bought by the Admiralty in 1826 uh, and renamed Cynthia uh, and you couldn't have the king <laughs> as the figurehead of Cynthia I love that. so uh, that would have been when he was removed and then goes into obscurity until I found reference to him and went to visit the widow of the diplomat uh, who was fascinated by the story I had to tell and some months later uh, rang up to say she thought I'd better have him so uh, I've rescued him and one day I might even uh, uh, have him restored because he is a bit uh, a bit neglected. What I, what I also was The ship changed gender as well, from, from George to Cynthia. It's a very modern story. I think that's fantastic. <laughs> if, if you reach just down there, yep. I'll introduce you to a third bit of carving. Oh, my goodness me. Is this what I'm looking for? Yeah. So uh, I've just found this lurk. It's what David's office is so wonderful. There are bits of ship lurking everywhere. This is... I've just got a timber and it's a, it's a piece of hand, very obviously. I'd say it was a... It's a left hand. I can see the thumb which is holding something with scales on. Uh, is that right? Yes, very well observed. And um, there is a faded plaque on it, which um, my, my eyesight can't pick up. So I will pass it to the elderly gentleman who can probably <laughs> see it better than me. No, it's, it's a lovely piece in that it came from HMS Serpent. Ah, I see. 
which had a snake charmer as the figurehead. Yes, that's it now. And this is his, as you say, his left arm holding the snake's head, the scaled thing. And uh, HMS Serpent was uh, a torpedo cruiser built in 1887 in Devonport, um, wrecked on the Spanish coast in 1890, only three years later, for the loss of all the crew bar three. Mm. And the, the three happened to be the seaboat's crew who were dressed up on deck with life belts on, yeah. and so they survived. And uh, the, the, the Admiralty sent out another small frigate to bring the survivors home, and they came back and brought half the figurehead uh, to Plymouth, where it rested in the Devonport collection and then was moved in 1937 to the National Maritime Museum, uh, where it was on a uh, half a figurehead, hardly discernible. It didn't have a head. Its left hand was missing. Mm. Uh, and uh, it's been in the National Maritime Museum, but not on display ever since. Uh, some years ago, probably 15 years ago, uh, somebody told me that the other, no, the figurehead, of the serpent was in North Spain. Mm. And I said rubbish because uh, I've got uh, records of it in being in Greenwich. Uh, anyway, I eventually went out there to look at this and it was the other half. The figurehead had split in two. Right. The left half was in London, the right half was in Spain. And I've got lovely photographs of both. Uh, and then some years later, uh, I heard through a Spanish contact that the hand was in, a, in a, an antique dealer's house in Gloucestershire, a shop, and so I went and bought him at some considerable expense because there were medals from, from an admiral with it, etc. And so that is, again, one day it'll be married up with uh, maybe the left-hand half and a photograph, perhaps, of the right-hand half. It could make a lovely story. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's nice... It's so easy to have your kind of eye sucked into the, the actual figureheads, the bits with the eyes and the nose and the mouth. But of course, there are, there are pieces of, of figurehead as well, yeah. which are deserving of our intention as historians. Um, let's go back to the beginning here. What is a figurehead? Well, a figurehead serves many purposes. In, in ancient times, they, they existed. If you go to the Valley of the Kings and see the, the, the frescoes on the... Uh, entrances to the pharaoh's tombs. There are boats or ships with figureheads mm. taking the god kings to the Netherland. Uh, the Vikings had great animals on the prows of their ships. Mm. They're my uh, favourite ones, I think. They're quite um, aggressive, aren't they? Yeah, and yeah. The, the, even the bio-tapestry yeah. of, of the invasion of William the Conqueror um, shows the boats or ships, boats mainly, um, with animal heads carved in the bow and stern. Um, so they, they served a purpose for giving a decoration to the end of the bow structure. Uh, later, they uh, um, had all sorts of symbolic mean reasons, maybe religious, maybe superstitions, that sailors who were going out and exploring the the, the world were superstitious men and they liked to have a talisman to follow. Uh, and then later still, when they became 
personalised to the ship's name. They were a way of drunken sailors finding their way back to their own ship. <laughs> oh, that's my ship. <laughs> Very good. Uh, and, also, and, and some people believed that the figurehead allowed the ship to see where it was going. Yeah. So there are all sorts of stories behind this. And there's a much more ancient tradition, isn't there, of painting eyes on the vessels. You go to the yes. Mediterranean, you can see eyes painted yes. on the vessels of fishing boats. Yes, indeed. Same principle, is it? Yep, certainly. Uh, and, they, and they also had a tremendous esprit de corps. Um, there's the story of HMS Brunswick at the glorious 1st of June battle, where she, the figurehead was struck and the hat was blown off the, the, the figurehead of Lord Brunswick, who was there. And the, the, the shipwright came up to the captain and said, it's, it's wrong for us to go into battle now with, um, the, the, with the, the Lord without his hat. And He's so, undressed. Yep, so the captain gave him his hat oh. and was nailed onto the figure. <laughs> it obviously didn't fit, but it's the principle of it that they needed to have their figurehead looking right and proper for war. Yeah. So there are all sorts of fundamental things about figureheads which are worth remembering when one's simply treating them as artefacts. Yeah, I wonder what they'd have thought of the king's green hair. <laughs> <laughs> they'd have probably turned in the king's grave. I think they might have done, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> Um, in, in, in 1727, uh, the figurehead uh, had a, a bit of a U-turn in that it was a, they were allowed to have figureheads carved in the likeness of the ship's name. Mm -hmm. Up until then, all warships, the majority of warships, had lions as their figurehead. Yeah. What date uh, was that again? 1727. 1727, okay. Uh, so for the rest of that century... Uh, the lions continued on some of the new ships that were built, uh, but other personalised figureheads started taking over, and by the end of the century, they were all uh, unique to the ship. Uh, and that made a huge difference to somebody like me, who's trying to research the background of the carvings, because there's nothing much to say about one lion from a different lion. Um, and, and yet the uh, the stories that can be told about the, the figureheads themselves uh, are legion. They, they, they re represented animals and birds. They represented military men, both naval and army, uh, royalty, professions, uh, Greek mythology. Uh, everywhere you looked, there were different in Georgian and Victorian times, people were most interested in these subjects. Yeah. And so the whole... And it wasn't just men as well. There were women and um, it wasn't just white men. There are different races from all over the world. It's a huge eclectic kind of collection of humanity. Yes, it is. And it's a lovely mixture of history and art. Yeah. Uh, uh, there are very few risky, risque uh, uh, figureheads, unlike the merchantmen, which had quite a lot of girls with uncovered bosoms. You can't imagine Queen Victoria, who appeared on about six different ships uh, of, her, of her fleet. You can't imagine her being... <laughs> Undressed. <laughs> uh, so, so there is a difference between um, the way that the, uh, the figureheads appeared on naval ships and the way they appeared on merchant ships. And I think one of the interesting things is that with the 
naval ships, we've got a name. It's, it's often quite easy to, to match up the figurehead with the name of the ship. But with the merchant ships, there were so many of them and there is there are so many gaps in the history that often you have figureheads that survive that you, you don't know the name of the ship, but you know, you know, it, know it existed. Yep. I was looking at the collection in the, the Cutty Sark, uh, uh, underneath the Cutty Sark, a sure. wonderful collection of figureheads. And they know who, um, oh, I don't want to put a percentage on it, maybe say 70%. They know who 70% of them are, but 30%, they, they just don't know, but they've yep. got magnificent figureheads. Yes. Well, they were collected by uh, Long John Silver, um, and, and well, that was his. Uh, his what was his real name? Uh, Pass. <laughs> no, it uh, wasn't John Silver. <laughs> no. uh, Cumber. No, I, I okay, can't remember. Um, the big difference uh, between military and uh, merchant figureheads is that when a, a new ship was ordered by the Admiralty, usually in those days built in royal dockyards, uh, they named it and they said what class of ship it should be, from a three-decker first-rate down to a, a brig. Uh, and the name would be given depending on the type of ship. A big ship would be Indomitable or Royal Albert or something like that. And little ships would be bird names or... Dog names as well. There was a big dog name period, wasn't yeah, there? Yes, so Bulldog is, is a, a su survivor, yes. Uh, and Beagle, indeed, mm -hmm. they, uh, had a little half Beagle on the on her bow. Uh, but so when the Admiralty had named the ship, uh, not not physically named, but they'd placed an order for a named ship, they would then invite the dockyard to carve a figurehead for her. But before carving, the the dockyard carvers would have to send up to the Admiralty a little drawing of the a design drawing of the figurehead for approval and uh, so it was all regulated in that way and happily hundreds of those design drawings are in the National Archives amongst the Admiralty records. So it's in the naval case it's very much more regulated and easy to follow mm. historically than the merchant case. Yeah. Uh, I concentrated on uh, warship figureheads simply because it was a big enough subject and better documented and it also matched my background. So uh, I, I know very little apart from admiring the, the, the artistry uh, about the, the merchant figureheads yeah. um, and I'm very happy to have got quite a lot of knowledge of the, the military ones. The, um Artistry is an interesting word, isn't it? Well, I suppose if you think of people building modern aircraft carriers now, you wouldn't say that many of them were actual artists. They may they may argue the point and say actually, you know, they are they are artists of steel. Yeah. Um, but the you know when you think back to the 17th century and the 18th century, the, the ships were magnificent. And when you look at the models that were made of the ships, maybe ones that presented to the king, whatever it was, there are seriously talented people mm. um, working at these. Uh, at these dockyards making these ships yeah. and you get a, such a sense of that when you look at the drawings of the figureheads because they're they're exquisitely drawn yes and then they are to, made in three dimensions yes uh, it's interesting when you compare our figurehead carvers we call them carvers in our language the the french call them uh, sculptors oh. and there's something <laughs> subtle about that if you look at french figureheads they are much more 
classical sculptures than our ones. Ours are all perhaps a bit rugged uh, and uh, there's, there's something in the language, the culture, that you can tell a French figurehead from an English one because of the way they're presented maybe. Yeah. Uh, so there are, there are subtleties with, with language and cultures, yes. Yeah. I wonder if it was a matter of just giving someone a go. So you're, you're, good, at, you're good at carving out planks and someone said, oh, have, have a go at a figurehead, because some of them are not very good. They really aren't, but some of them are really tremendous. True, true. Yeah. Um, I should just say for everyone listening, we've made some wonderful videos uh, on YouTube where we are, uh, you can you, use digital artistry to um, bring to life the real person that inspired the carver or the sculptor of the figurehead. They are um, spine tingling, some of them. I would urge you all to, to have a look at those. Um, so David, how did you become first interested in figureheads? Well, I suppose as I came towards the end of my time in uniform, um, I began to realise that I'd seen figureheads throughout my 30-something years of service from the day I joined Dartmouth, where there were two on the parade ground there, one from an ex-royal yacht, Osborne, and one from Britannia. Are they still there? Yep. yep. Well, the, the, the relics of them, they, they've been reconstructed quite a lot, but they're still there, yes. Uh, and so they were there, and then if you went on to other establishment, HMS Raleigh had a couple. At Portsmouth, there are a number around yep. the naval base entrance in niches on the, the wardroom walls. Uh, and so all over the place there were figureheads and I realised that there was no person or organisation that was dedicated to their preservation or, or indeed interested in them. That's a bit sweeping because the Mod Art Collection did have very sincere interests but with, with very little money and, and not that interested in the naval aspects. Uh, so I started by while I still had access to establishments, by writing around to places like naval store depots and armament depots, as well as naval establishments, to see what they had. Oh, trying to find them, lurking in sheds. Indeed. Mm. Uh, and indeed, they keep on disappearing in sheds these oh, days. That's yeah. uh, amazing how big artefacts can actually get mislaid. But that's another story. Uh, what I discovered after about a year of writing around and, and, and talking to people, there are about 200 British warship figureheads in existence, mostly in this country, mostly in museum collections, uh, with a few in Australia, New Zealand, America, uh, South Africa. And in the Caribbean? Uh, not really anymore. There are one or two that have moved from from there to Halifax oh, okay. um, because of uh, historical reasons. I was wondering if any had been sort of left in Barbados or Antigua. No, no, I think not. There are one or two that purport to be, but aren't actually. Right, right. right. Uh, and and that's the case everywhere. You know that there are there are fakes. Well, there are things that have lost their history somewhere, put it like that. <laughs> uh, so uh, having got hooked on the subject, I then started trying to uh, discover their history. And that led me very happily to the National Archives, uh, the Public Record Office, as it was then called, mm -hmm. 
uh, where the Admiralty records are of all these design drawings coming through. And That's there, in queue in London for all of you people listening there, and you can literally turn up and you can get a reader's ticket and you can go and have a look at them. Yep. So it's all publicly accessible. It's one of the great joys of, of living, uh, living in England. If uh, I say to people when I meet them, if you've never actually been to the National Archives, you should go because yeah. it's somewhere where no matter what your interest is, you must be able to find something unique and original. And I've spent many a happy day sitting, order, having pre-ordered um, documents which come up in beautiful boxes and you look at documents that haven't been looked at for months, years. And they allow you to originally photocopy and now photograph with digital cameras. And I've been able to use the design drawings in the books that I've written uh, as beautiful illustrations of how these things were designed and approved. So take us through uh, an experience in the National Archives and how, if you're talking about these design drawings, how big are they? Are they huge or are they small? No, they come in boxes that are uh, bigger than A4, but uh, uh, not, not as big as A3. Okay. Uh, they, they tend to be a standard box. And so they, they hold letters, essentially, uh, and they're, they're delivered up by machinery, which have, has little tractors that bring things up, <laughs> and they appear in your unique locker that you log into. They're, they're delivered from the behind, and you, when, when it appears, you're allowed to take it out, go to your designated desk, Hold your breath and then open the box. Open the cage. Yeah. And, you, and you never know uh, on first reading uh, what you're going to find. And uh, like all pieces of research, sometimes you strike gold and other times you, you're raking away at ashes. So are these, are they, um, do you get a box full of drawings of figureheads or are you trying no, to find no. a drawing of a figurehead within all sorts of other correspondence? No, you're, you're, you're into maybe a bound volume or maybe... Uh, unbound papers, letters between the surveyor of the Navy and the dockyards. And so they cover all sorts of subjects to do with cranes and lighters and things, not only figurehead designs. So they, they, they haven't done filtering things. You, you have to do your own searching. And that's part of the joy, of course. Absolutely, yeah. Because you, you're looking for a figurehead, but you might find something completely different. Yep. And that takes you off down a, another rabbit hole. Indeed. Uh, I've got a son in the Royal Marines and I found the Royal Marine officer in Chatham asked for a special house to be ordered for him. Oh, <laughs> very sweet. Can I please have a house? <laughs> <laughs> gives a sketch of it. Uh, uh, the, the other place that, that it drew, led me to is the National Maritime Museum's collection of ship plans. Yep. Uh, now, they're not at Greenwich. They're at Woolwich in the old Woolwich Arsenal buildings. And... Uh, they're housed, they're huge, millions of them uh, in, in great rolled sheets because they're all scaled 1 to 48, uh, which is a quarter of an inch to the foot. Uh, and so they're big drawings and you're, again, have more difficulty accessing those, but with, and, and certain of the earlier ones have been photocopied so that you can look at them, not photocopied, photographed, so that you can look on them on a screen. Yeah, scanned, yeah. They, they are gradually 
getting put online, uh, but that's not complete yet. Um, so that's another huge resource because in, in the profile plan, uh, there's a, a drawing about the same size as the uh, design drawings uh, of the figurehead. So uh, with the design drawings and ship plans, you cover hundreds of ships. Uh, my reckoning is that there are about 5,000 ships between the reigns of Henry VIII and Victoria when they finished, uh, about 5,000 ships with figureheads. So it's quite a big subject to yeah. try and track down. And they do, I mean, they, they start to disappear in the maybe the early uh, 1800s. Yeah. I remember the, is it HMS Temeraire? She goes through a refit and they don't spend a, any money on the figurehead. They deliberately, they're, they're trying to save money on the decoration of the ship. So they give us something called a fiddlehead, which is more like a, a, a scroll at the, at the end of a violin's yes. neck, yes. something like that. Yes. Um, the, the, those were usually left to very small ships, which didn't warrant uh, the, the, the cost of a figurehead. Uh, and they had either a scroll head, which scrolls downwards, or a fiddle head, which scrolls upward. Oh, like, I see. Like the fiddle. Um, and uh, I didn't know about the Temeraire, but um, so the, the, the range of, of figureheads in the very early days of warship ones, biggest ships had multiple figureheads with maybe a, a royal coat of arms in the centre yep. with a crown above it and with supporters, usually Neptune on one side and Britannia on the other, riding on a lion or a horse, but each with fish's tails. So they were a sea lion and a sea horse. And the whole of that mixture with the odd cherubs around them was very expensive. Now, there's a then, lot going on there. <laughs> then, then down they came through to uh, the, the individual ones in 1727 and, and they then ranged between a standing figure like Royal William in Plymouth that I'll touch on a bit later, um, uh, two busts where the arms are severed at the just above the elbow yep. so that you don't have any of the difficulty of carving arms, they're cheaper. Uh, so there were full figures, half figures, uh, busts, and then down it's to your... Shrinking over time. Well, no, and, and, and depending on the size of the ship, basically. Oh. Uh, and you're right, they kept on... When, when the letters that go backwards and forwards, when the carvers submit their design with an estimate, quite often, the surveyor of the navy would cross out the figure and reduce it by a certain amount because they allowed so much per figurehead for a frigate and that sort of thing. Yeah. Who was this, this chap in 1727, right, who's sitting at his desk, someone like you, and went, I've had enough of this. I've had <laughs> enough of all of these stupid coats of arms. I've got a really fun idea. And it's a bit of a mad idea, isn't it? I mean, if you... We know that figureheads exist, that's fine. But if you do put yourself in his, his guy's shoes when they didn't exist, 
And he said, why don't, why, why don't we just have some people? Why don't yeah. we have a carving of an actual person yeah. in front of the ship? And someone else said, all right, yeah. give it a go. I don't know. I'll have to ask a historian. That yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, if anyone's listening and they'd like to do some research into that, find out who the, the people were, probably people, maybe one person, behind this change in 1727. I'd absolutely love to know that. I think, yeah. I think it's... Uh, I, I like to know that because I reckon... The, the person who did it is someone worth finding out about. You yeah. don't come up with a crazy idea like that unless you're an interesting chap. And that means there's someone lurking in the National Archives that we can go and discover. And um, yeah, he'll be, he'll be full, of, full of vigor and life, I reckon. Wonderful, mm. wonderful. So David, where's the best place to go and see these figureheads? Well, the, the largest collection on display is at the National Museum of the Royal Navy, Portsmouth. That's the Portsmouth Dockyard, originally Portsmouth Dockyard collection, which turned into the the Naval Museum, which turned into the Portsmouth part of the National Museum of the Royal Navy. They've got 46 figureheads mm. on display, most of them in the Victory Gallery near HMS Victory, uh, but a few dotted around, and a few more that are being stored whilst conservation is contemplated and money is found because they've rescued some that have got themselves um, damaged or or rotting. We should just say about the conservation of these th these things as well. When conservators work on them, they can peel off the paint and they can see the different layers of paint. So you can work out how they would have appeared in the past. So yep. a figurehead now it is not necessarily what a figurehead looked like, you know, 50 years ago or 150 years ago. True. Yeah. They, no, they... they um, Sadly, most conservationists in the past haven't kept very good records of what they've found. The, the problem with uh, the Navy when they wanted to have a figurehead restored, they sent it to a conservation place person uh, who had a contract. And whether they ever asked for a report or whether they ever got a report, I don't know but they never asked for paint analysis to be done mm. because it was life was too short for that sort of thing. They were interested in getting the figurehead brought back to a beautiful condition where it could be saluted at the foot of the mast or whatever. Mm. Uh, so there's been a great gap. Uh, I'll come on to figurehead colours in a moment, if I may, but when the collection at Plymouth was being conserved recently, uh, HMS Royal William, the, the standing figure of uh, King William IV, uh, was analysed by the conservation people and they found at least 30 layers of paint, each with dirt between them by microscopically examining yeah. chips of paint. Uh, and they also helped solve the problem, which uh, again I'll touch on, uh, the colours, because in the case of Royal William, he was white for the first 20-something layers of paint and only colour came into it after in the most recent years. Hmm. So it's, it's, you, you can gain all sorts of information on history yeah. by looking at their fingerprints. As like paint technology? What's going on there? Expense of having coloured paint? Why did they suddenly start painting it in colour? Oh, we don't know. Obviously. I'll come on to that when I've finished this little bit, <laughs> if, I, if I may. Uh, after uh, the National uh, Museum of the Royal Navy at Portsmouth, 
the next collection is those at the National Maritime Museum at Greenwich and they've got 24 with an amazing wall of figureheads in their main atrium area um, and so they've got the second largest collection and they've got a few tucked away in other galleries so uh, that's another place well worth visiting if you if you want to see uh, a range of figureheads. And, and the final one is the most recent uh, assembly of figureheads at the box in Plymouth. Mm, very fine that is too. And the box is, uh, is, was created uh, from the old Museum Art Gallery and Public Library uh, and it still envelops the Museum and Art Gallery <coughs> and uh, in some inspired idea by one of the designers they borrowed from the Devonport collection 14 figureheads uh, w which they have conserved and beautifully conserved. I mean, you, we should just say that when you, when you see a figurehead nowadays, they're not always in great condition, but these are just magnificent. They are, but they've cost a great deal to do it. <clears throat> I don't think that the people who conceived the idea appreciated what they might find. Uh, there was, in the 1950s come the 60s, there was a habit of covering figureheads with fibreglass and resin because they felt that it would keep rot away and they would uh, preserve the figurehead warm and dry inside this shell. What they didn't realise was that over time temperature variations and sun damage would cause the fibreglass to crack, water would get inside and the rot would continue inside the fibreglass. So a number of the ones that were selected for preservation at the box had fibreglass coverings and those were removed as you say uh, like the paint but more so they took these shells away finding a, a huge range of difficulties underneath mm. which they've uh, managed to overcome by modern technology they had done all sorts of tests on dampness and uh, the, the strength of the material underneath by sensitive drills that they put in to make sure how penetrated it was um, but they didn't didn't discover until there it was too late how expensive it was going to be but as a result you've got 14 wonderful figureheads now suspended in a very dramatic way so that people visiting can enjoy their lunch and drinks underneath this wonderful display. Yeah, it's like being in a, in a rowing boat underneath the bows of one of these mighty ships. They're up, they're up high as they should be, which I yeah. think is really appropriate. Yeah, lovely. And, and as a byproduct, uh, it has made us realise the hazards that still exist for some of the figureheads that are outside still. And it gives more grease to our elbow to be able to persuade people to get them indoors. Yeah, I mean, there, there are a finite number of them and they need they need caring for, don't they? They need yeah. looking after, otherwise yeah. they're not going to be here forever. Yeah, yeah. What can you tell me about the colours? The colours um, uh, caused me a little bit of a headache because, as you mentioned just now, most of the figureheads that have survived are brightly coloured. If you go to the National Maritime Museum, uh, the Devonport Collection, 
Portsmouth, you'll find them, most of them, coloured. And yet, when you look at photographs of ships in the latter period of the Victorian come Edwardian age, many of them have white figureheads. Uh, paintings by artists who drew watercolour portraits of ships included not great detail, but certainly white figureheads. Mm. And I couldn't understand why. And there was, I couldn't do much research myself until the advent of putting things online from the National Maritime Museum, the Imperial War Museum, uh, when you can call up the paintings collections of the National Maritime Museum, the photographic collections of the Imperial War Museum, yeah. and search them. And I searched through thousands of paintings online, which I couldn't do if I had to go to Greenwich to order mm. them up. Uh, and was able to, I wrote a paper for notes for the National Mariner, for the, uh, the Mariner's Mirror, Mariner's Mirror um, on the subject. And the conclusion was that of the figureheads that I'd been, uh, been able to look at, uh, over half of them were painted white when they were at sea. So how did we end up with the vast majority of the ones that survived being painted in colour. And the answer, I believe, is that the vast majority of the ones in our collections today were came through the dockyard collections because it was there that the ships were broken up and it was there that the figureheads were tucked away in sail lofts, in workshops, in odd places where they would be safe. And it's almost a natural temptation for a dockyard matey yeah. to, to say she's not looking very pretty today let's tart her up a bit yeah. and so i'm pretty sure that as a natural evolution the figureheads got painted when they color. were taken off the ships yeah and if you take king billy hms royal william uh, he was certainly white on board uh, when he was first brought ashore and he was it was not because of his condition. The ship was cut down in 1854, I think, uh, from a three-decker to a two-decker to allow machinery to be fitted and the extra weight of the bunkers and coal to be added. Cutting down meant that the figurehead of a standing figure of the king was too large for mm -hmm. a two-decker, and so a bust was carved, and we've got details of, of the bust. And so King Billy himself came ashore uh, and the first photographs of him standing outside number one covered slip uh, are white. And so it was only after he came there uh, was he given blue and, I mean, he's standing in the robes of the Order of the Garter, so they had all sorts of models on which to paint him. Yeah. Uh, so it was, he was painted in colour in the dockyard. Wonderful. Yeah. Isn't that great? Uh, lovely story. Lovely um, story. Um, what are the sources that historians can use to find out about figureheads? Well, I've already mentioned two of the primary sources, uh, the National Archives at, at Kew and the National Maritime Museum Ship Plans oh, yes, at yep. Woolwich. Uh, secondary sources, the, the, uh, the authoritative book written in uh, 1925 
uh, was this one, Old Ship Figureheads and Sterns. Oh, by L. Carl Lawton. Uh, it's a beautiful, of course, appropriately uh, dark blue um, hardback book. Replica, oh. I'm afraid. It's oh. a modern replica, a... modern reprint. It's, it's, a, it's wonderful, though. Some really beautiful line drawings showing the ships. I'm looking at one here. The, we've got some French, French uh, figureheads from the late 17th century. Um, so this is a good starting point, isn't it? It's, it's got tremendous amount. It, Carl Lawton was a, an early member of the, the Society of Nautical Research, and um, that was one of his products. The other man at this sort of period, a little earlier, in, in 1911, uh, Douglas Owen, uh, went round the dockyards making notes about the uh, the figureheads and published articles in 1911 in the Mariner's Mirror. So that's another source. Uh, 1911 also was the first catalogue of uh, pictures, mm. plate, etc. So uh, what I'm looking at here is another another appropriately dark blue book called the Admiralty Catalogue of Pictures, Plate relics, etc. I love a book with etc. on ah, it. With the full titles inside. Well, you, you, you don't know what it's going to be. Something miscellaneous, I hope. Here we are. Full title. Oh, and trophies. Um, so it's the catalogue of pictures, presentation, plate, figureheads, models, relics and trophies at the Admiralty on board HM ships and in the naval establishments at home and abroad. So they've done a survey of, of everything they've got. And it's a wonderful snapshot of what was where in 1911. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a real good starting point. 448, Royal William. Full-length male figure, 13 foot. Yeah. That's big. 120-gun ship built at Pembroke, 1833. Um, stag, number 458, the full part of a stag, 6 foot 3 inches. Fifth-rate ship, 46 guns, built at Pembroke again. Um, 1830, or oh, I could spend all day doing this. Um, the Atalanta, half-length female figure, four foot six inches, sloop, 16 guns, removed from the Navy, 1869. And uh, Ajax, three-quarter male figure, 12 foot three inches, 78 gun ship, interesting, built in the Thames, 1809, broken up at Devonport. Uh, isn't that great? No, it's a, it's a it's a lovely a lovely reference. And then we've got some more modern modern sources, do we? Yes, the, the, a chap called Peter Norton, yeah. who was I think also a retired naval officer, wrote that very interesting and nicely researched book in uh, uh, when was that? Nineteen seventy six. Ah. So he'd. Nearly as old as me, David. <laughs> <laughs> he'd uh, he'd done some good research without the access to archives that I've been lucky enough to enjoy. Yeah, he's a very good bit here, um, a point to be made as well. If you look at um, beautiful old uh, oil paintings, particularly of 17th century ships, then that's a great source for figureheads. Here's a picture of the figurehead of the Royal Prince, which is the largest ship of her day, designed and built by Phineas Pett. Um, there's a detail from a painting of Vroom in the Franz Hals Museum at Harlem, and that's a ship in 1613. So you really can go back a very long way to get some magnificent detail.
And then I have to be slightly personal because there are three books that I've written. Oh, there we are, three books. By that, that's my first one. Uh, the Warship Figureheads of Portsmouth by David Pulvertoft. Um, oh, it's got some wonderful drawings in here. Some, uh, well, some... I decided at that stage to work in collaboration with a watercolour artist. And rather than having photographs of the figureheads, he sat in Portsmouth for some weeks and drew watercolour portraits of them. Particularly fine one of HMS Centurion. And we, we uh, therefore, we tried to get our foot into the marketplace by uh, combining art and history. Yeah. And uh, it's it's proved it's proved to get the foot in the door, because that allowed the publisher of my next one and the one that I'm most proud of that one. Figureheads of the Royal Navy by David Pulvertoft, forward by Admiral of the Lord Boyce. Um, so a magnificent thing here, and here we've got uh, reproductions of photographs of these design drawings that you were saying that we found at the National Archives. Huge variety of material here. What I decided in that book was not to produce 200 photographs of current warships, figureheads, survivors, but to, because anybody who's interested in reading that book can go off and find the ones because there's a catalogue at the back showing where all the survivors are. Uh, and so this goes into the designs and the artistry of the whole subject more than just the records. They're amazing. Um, and you mentioned birds earlier, and here we have um, some fantastic ones of HMS Falcon, HMS Vulture, and I think my favourite, HMS Cormorant. Yeah, look at this. Yeah, it's splendid, isn't it? With a, a rather kind of beaky, aggressive looking cormorant on the but, front but there. The, the fascinating thing there is that the carver submitted two alternative designs one is of a cormorant, uh, the bird. The other is of a Chinese fisherman who, of course, used cormorants by, to dive for fish, but they put strings around their necks so they couldn't swallow them. Yeah. And when they came up with them, they had to regurgitate them to the fishermen. But this one wasn't approved. Uh, it's an extraordinary one. They used trained sea otters as well. <laughs> Do you know that? No, no, they did. It wasn't just cormorants. I didn't know about the cormorants, but um, yeah, the the birds and the the reproductions of animals um, are really tremendous. There's HMS Beagle as well. Oh, HMS Greyhound. That's a splendid one. Uh, <laughs> HMS Racehorse, which is the head of a racehorse, as you might expect. Uh, but there's also the option of having a jockey. <laughs> These are very good. Race, which... Racer, probably. Yeah. Fabulous stuff, and um, or Hercules, he's a fearsome brute. Yeah. Uh, huge variety, you could spend uh, so much time looking through all these. And then um, you and wrote a book on the uh, the figureheads at the box in Plymouth as well. And the, the, the interesting thing that came out of that is because I was wanting to write just about the 14 figureheads, and they all come from the Victorian period, because th that happens to be. Uh, by the time I started writing that little book, uh, I was looking to see where, which places each of the ships had served. And so one found that two of the ships in the book would have known each other in the Baltic during the Crimean War, where the fleet was sent to bottle up the Russians to prevent them sending ships around to, to, the, to the Black Sea. Uh, 
others would have known each other out in the Far East during the, the Opium Wars. So all of a sudden, the relationship between those 14 figureheads can be seen if you believe that figureheads can see each other, which of course I do. <laughs> Quite right, you should do. Um, <laughs> I'm just looking at the ones from the Plymouth. They've got HMS Sphinx, um, built in Woolwich, launched in February 1846, um, so a wooden paddle sloop. Her figurehead was a bust of a bearded male wearing a turban and a tunic with decorated lapels and waistband. Um, that's a particularly fine one. And my other favourite one is HMS Calcutta, mm -hmm. um, a third-rate ship of 84 guns, 1831. Her figurehead was a three-quarter length bust of an Indian ruler in traditional dress. Um, if you just turn to the, nearly at the back of that book, you'll see a nice photograph of Royal William that I've mentioned. Oh, yes, and there he is. There he is, standing... Now standing at uh, at Plymouth at the box. Yeah, tremendous stuff. Yeah, brilliant. Well, David, I've hugely enjoyed talking to you today. Um, I'm inspired to find out more about about these figures, and I can't wait to show you the videos we've created. Uh, they'll blow your mind. They really will. Good. Thank you so much for your time. It has been a great pleasure, Sam. Very much. Thank you. Many thanks everyone for listening. Don't forget those videos bringing the figureheads to life that I mentioned before. You can find them on the Mariner's Mirror podcast's YouTube channel, the Society for Nautical Research's Facebook page, and also we will be releasing shorter versions on Twitter and Instagram. Please make sure you go onto the Society for Nautical Research's website at snr.org.uk where you can check out all of our previous episodes as well as seeing what else the SNR is up to. And please, if you are not already a member, please join the Society. Your subscription will support this podcast. It will help publish the quarterly Mariner's Mirror journal that the Society has been producing for over a century and it will help preserve our maritime past. But also, and please don't forget this, if you sign up to be a member, you can come to our annual dinner on HMS Victory and that you will never, ever forget. Thanks so much for listening as always. I'll be back soon.